Attention, this is not legal advice. If you are experiencing a legal emergency, contact an attorney or your local public defender's office. The views expressed by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of Gin and Justice. justice hey i'm justine and i'm amanda welcome to another episode of gin and justice this week we had the pleasure and privilege of speaking with someone from um, vermont again and vermont will always hold a special place in my heart um (laughs) i'm from kind of up in that area i i went to school at my uh, college in vermont as we heard from my old professor sandy last week or on the last episode of gin and justice So this week, we got to speak with the state's top prosecutor, the attorney general of the state of Vermont, T.J. Donovan, and he was elected to office by the people of the state of Vermont. An attorney general is the basically state's top prosecutor. There's also an attorney general of the United States, which is currently Merrick Garland, and They essentially are the highest ranking law enforcement officer, prosecutor, and they are generally a legal advisor to the government, whether that be the U.S. government or the state government, depending on what level they are at. Yeah, T.J. Donovan is amazing. His perspective on the criminal justice system, he's very woke, if you will, (laughs) and I think that's what the kids say. Um, We talked about white privilege and how he is very aware that he has it. He was just... Very down to earth. I didn't think it was going to go the way it did. Yeah, absolutely. And he kind of talks about his journey. Uh, he used to be the a prosecutor in Chittenden County in Vermont, which is one of their more popular counties. That's where the city of Burlington is. He kind of rose to the ranks and became the state attorney in that county. And then now, obviously, he is the highest prosecutor, the attorney general. And he kind of talks about his journey as being a prosecutor as um, and now what he does as an attorney general, what he thinks is important for criminal justice reform, and just some legal concepts that we touch on in this episode are ceilings and expungements. And he was really big on those, which I thought was a really so cool. good idea. Yeah, it's not something I've really thought about very much, but he obviously has put a lot of thought into it how important he thinks that is for the criminal like, justice system. It is system. so hard to do anything with yourself when you have a criminal record. It follows you everywhere you go. Yeah, if you guys recall, we did a legal brief on Second Chance Month, and we talked about a lot of the difficulties that formerly incarcerated individuals or returning citizens face once they have served their time. That criminal record serves as a blip. It can prevent them from getting housing, jobs. The punishment never ends. Yeah, correct. So housing jobs, driver's license restrictions, all of that stuff. And so he has such a refreshing view on everything. I just wish that everybody was like him. Yeah, I can say that it's refreshing hearing that from the prosecution side, because unfortunately, that is not always the experience that uh, I personally have had with, you know, a lot of different Uh, prosecutors that I work with um, or have worked with. And so it was really refreshing hearing that from that side of things. So just to kind of get into ceilings and expungement, the difference between a ceiling and expungement. So essentially, if, if a record is sealed, if you have a criminal record and it is sealed, 
that means that it's still there, but nobody can see it without a court order. And obviously it varies, you know, like much of these things we talk about from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, from state to state, but generally that's what a ceiling is. And Is that what they do for juveniles? Yes. And so with juveniles, uh, typically the practice is to seal the record automatically, any juvenile records, once a juvenile becomes 18. Again, it varies state by state, but that's generally the practice is to seal juvenile records. So, you know, if you're applying for like a law enforcement job or if you are applying for certain things, a court record can unseal that and see that record. So the difference with an expungement, obviously an expungement is a better outcome. That's when the record basically is deleted. And so not everybody qualifies for expungement and it each state's going to have different qualifications for how an expungement can happen. So here in Florida, it, it's only certain crimes. Ultimately, it is always up to FDLE, which is the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. You go through an application process. You go get fingerprinted. It's like a $500 fee. And then they kind of review everything and decide whether you qualify for expungement. Generally, you can only get it once here in the state of Florida. The original charge has to be uh, what's called a withhold which it means you were not convicted of it or went through some type of diversion, something along those lines where you were not um, adjudicated guilty of that crime. And then the other thing too is certain crimes you will not be able to get expunged. So certain uh, either violent crimes or sometimes domestic in nature crimes cannot, will not qualify for expungement. And again, uh, even if you do meet the qualifications, it's ultimately always up to FDLE. Now, it sounds like from our interview with Attorney General Donovan that he's very big on expungements and maybe they don't have as many, um, you know, qualifications that we require here in Florida to get that expungement. But it's so important because it it really does make the record disappear. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, unless you're applying for the FBI, I'm sure they could probably still find that (laughs) is my guess. I'm sure they can. And then the other thing is if you are adjudicated guilty or you don't meet the qualifications for expungement, another thing that is within the realm of power is what's called a pardon, which I'm sure many people have heard of, especially around Thanksgiving. Turkey always gets pardoned. But the only person who has power to pardon in federal crimes, the only person who has power to pardon is the president of the United States. And then in states, the state governor has the power to pardon. So that just basically means... You are forgiven. Uh, Your record will no longer count against you, whatever that means. Right. (laughs) Uh, The record is a forgiven, essentially, and you are released from whatever sentence or commutation that you are required to do under said crime. So that's kind of the three things. That's kind of three ways you can get rid of a criminal record once it is there. Obviously, the best option out of all of those is the expungement. And so the really cool thing about talking to Attorney General Donovan is he's really big on expungements and he explains why he thinks those are so important. And remember, the Attorney General and the state attorneys or district attorneys, they are put in by election. So So you have to vote and you have to do your research. (laughs) And something that's come up in, you know, our prior episodes is that local elections matter. Mm -hmm. Those are the people that are controlling who's being arrested what crimes are being prosecuted, how people are being punished. So those are things, if you are pro-criminal justice reform, you want to see changes in the system, those are changes that you can make is choosing, researching who you're voting for, and then actually going out and voting. 
So guys, we just want to thank you for listening. We just want to remind you to rate, review, subscribe, follow us anywhere you get your podcasts. We are also on all the social medias. On Twitter, we are Gin underscore Justice Pod. Gin and Justice Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Gin underscore and underscore Justice on TikTok, although we have not made one yet, but We're we working will. On it. <laughs> <laughs> you can email us if you have any questions. You want to tell us how great we are. You want to tell us how bad we suck. Whatever. <laughs> if you want to share an experience about the criminal justice system. Yeah, that too. Amanda at ginandjusticepodcast.com and justine at ginandjusticepodcast.com with that being said enjoy this interview here and we have the pleasure of meeting with Attorney General T.J. Donovan of the state of Vermont. Hey T.J., why don't you tell us about yourself? How are you guys? Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm T.J. Donovan. I'm the Attorney General for uh, the state of Vermont, uh, Justine's former home state that we hope she returns to at some point in time. (laughs) Uh, And I've been in this role for about four and a half, close to five years. Prior to that, uh, I was uh, the Chittenden County State's Attorney uh, in the Burlington area. And uh, prior to that, I was in private practice, and I started my career actually in Philadelphia as as an assistant DA. Awesome. So you were both a prosecutor in Philadelphia and Chittenden County. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, in terms of when I went to Philly, that was my first job right out of law school. And it it really was a great place to learn how to be a trial lawyer uh, because you're in court every single day. And I grew up in Burlington. I grew up, so, you know, going to Philadelphia was certainly a change for me. I think Philly at that point maybe still is, is like the fifth or sixth largest city. And I worked with great people. Um, I really learned how to be, um, as I said, uh, a courtroom lawyer um, and handling a high volume of cases. I think a lot of the issues, a lot of the social issues, though, that I saw, whether it was on the issues of race or poverty, it really kind of demonstrated to me the inequities of the criminal justice system. And a lot of those experiences that I've learned and, and, and saw firsthand in Philly are really the basis of some of the things I've tried to do when I came back home to Vermont. I mean, obviously, I saw those issues, too, in Vermont, uh, perhaps not just as pronounced, but, uh, um, you know, it was a it was a great learning experience not only professionally, but I think socially and um, for me to to see firsthand a lot of the challenges we all deal with um, in the criminal justice system and the issues of disparate treatment, uh, the disproportionate impact on people of color and, of course, uh, folks who suffer from addiction and mental illness. So um, it was it, it was a great experience, but a lot of the things I saw down there, I, I tried to change when I came to Vermont. And then what does, as a prosecutor, what's your day-to-day kind of look like? Well, you know, it, it's really changed um, from the time I was state's attorney. Um, and of course, I think in Florida, you guys call them state's attorney too, right? We do. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah everywhere else are DAs, but Florida, yes. there we go. Florida <laughs> and Vermont. We, we can do a show in Florida <laughs> and Vermont. Uh, but, um, you, you know, my days as state's attorney was you were kind of in court and you were dealing with people um, on a day-to-day basis, which I loved. And I, you know, loved really kind of the, the lobby of the state's attorney's office because 
you'd have people from all walks of life, people from all different professions, from prosecutors to defense attorneys to cops to, to defendants, to people who were in crisis, to commun- all kind of coming and congregating in that room. And we were just kind of solving problems and really meeting people where they're at and breaking down barriers. And I didn't, you know, as I said, I grew up in Burlington, so I knew a lot of the folks and they're good people. Um, you know, they might've made a mistake or, you know, a lot of reasons, as we all know, uh, people end up in the criminal justice system for the, for the wrong reasons. And so I, I really actually enjoyed that part of the job of dealing with, dealing with people on a, on a direct service level. Now as attorney general, it's, it's very different. It's much more policy oriented, I would say. Um, I would say I'm surrounded by a lot more lawyers all day, um, <laughs> which is, you know, which is a good thing. Uh, some of the time, sometimes. some of the time, sometimes. And a lot of the day now is, you know, again, kind of policy work, casework, and and a lot of meetings. So, what kind of crimes were you dealing with when you were a prosecutor? Yeah. So the biggest stuff that we were dealing with during my time um, as state's attorney, I would say. Um, and I always remember this. I, I was asked in 2012, what's the number one issue? And without hesitation, I said prescription drugs, oxys. And so addiction was the number one issue. What stemmed from that, obviously, were a lot of property crimes. Um, and we focused heavily on how do we address the issue of addiction? How do we ab- abate this crisis? And of course, you know, that prescription drug um, crisis quickly turned into a full-blown heroin crisis in Vermont that we're still dealing with. I was just on a call this morning, uh, you know, overdoses are up uh, here in Vermont. And I think there's a lot of reason, obviously, the pandemic has something to do with it. And, you know, addressing those issues was a main focus. Um, unfortunately, we were dealing with with a lot of domestic violence cases. Um, and you'd see a lot of the issues that I that I mentioned earlier in terms of uh, mental illness. We started the mental health court during my time as, as state's attorney. And Vermont certainly is a is is a safe state when compared to other states. But you know, we certainly had our share of homicides and um, assaults as well. And um, but when I look back at my time as state's attorney, um, that that opiate crisis um, was really a major driver of what we were trying to address. Yeah, we see it all day here. Yep. Yes. And, and yeah. it's terrible because, look, addiction doesn't discriminate. And, mm-hmm. you know, we all have fa- I have family members who suffer from it. Um, Everybody loves somebody who loves a drug addict. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they're good people. Uh, they're sick. They need help. And as I say, there's never a jail cell. Uh, that, you know, cures somebody of, of a disease and it, it's a disease. And then you couple that with mental illness, you couple that with issues of shame and trauma and it, it gets really complicated. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So you kind of mentioned it. you started a mental health court while you were the state attorney. And was that the RICC program? Um, that was actually something a little bit different. So we started, um, when, when I was a line prosecutor, a drug court started and that was great. And then we had a mental health court, which was great. And then I went to a place um, down in, in Brooklyn called Red Hook. And I don't know if you guys have ever heard of this, but there's a great program called uh, the Center for Court Innovation. And they run a lot of really innovative programs out of the criminal justice system. And one of them was the Red Hook Community Center. 
in, in Brooklyn. And I went down to visit it and it was everything I thought um, a justice system, not a criminal justice system, but a justice system should be. And we walked into court and there was the judge, it was my story member's name, Judge Calabrese. And the courtroom was set up as we would understand a courtroom to set up. There was a, 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 a public defender, there was a prosecutor. But in the middle, and the judge didn't talk to the prosecutor or, or, or the defense attorney, which I thought was great, talk to a caseworker about what does this person need? And then in the same building, there were direct services in the building. So you could get immediate services for whatever the issue was. And I just thought it was a great program. It really, I thought, exuded this, this, this notion of, of, of fairness. Uh, this notion of, you know, a healthy community is a safe community, this notion that we're all part of this community together and we have a we have a responsibility to help each other. And we all know that the world is a complicated place and we tell folks to go navigate the, the bureaucracies of state government when we're telling them also to take care of their family and have a job and get a car and pay their taxes. And it's it's nearly impossible for a lot of folks. It's it's hard for anybody on, on a good day. And these the, so I saw this court system. And I was like, this is exactly what I want to do. So we went back to Vermont and tried to tried to steal that that program. And we started what was called the Rapid Intervention Community Court. Now, we couldn't get it uh, in the actual courtroom. And that's a whole different podcast. Um, <laughs> so but I was like, I still want to do this. And so I hired somebody to kind of from the prosecutor's office, intervene on the front end before we filed a case. So pre-charge. So, you know, arrest from police, paperwork to prosecutor's office. Instead of a charge, we'd have an intervention. We would use an evidence-based screening tool. Based on that, we'd link to the appropriate uh, community uh, social service agency in lieu of prosecution. That's do some amazing. compliance. Yeah, do it for 90 days. And it was great. And, you know, it wasn't perfect, but it just, for me, it was, this is what we should be doing for helping people. And a lot of these folks that are coming to the court system, as I said, you know, Justine, you know, you know, from being in Burlington, Burlington's a small place. Um, they're good people and, and they just had some struggles. And our job was to try to uh, break down the barriers to care, to get them some help so they could be productive citizens. And um, that was really kind of the, the genesis of the program. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. I feel like those are needed everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> And so you also started a mental health court and a drug court while you're a state attorney. Well, I, I can't take credit for the drug court or the mental health court. <laughs> I actually have to give um, uh, the judiciary the credit there. And in fact, a lot of the, um, I, I would say, inspiration um, for doing some of this stuff was, was this judge called uh, Judge Jim Truschetti out of um, Chittenden County. And he really started the drug court. And I was a line prosecutor. And I just, what I loved about how he handled it was the need was so great. He just did it because I think we've all been in meetings where the only action step is another meeting and we just <laughs> meet and meet and meet and nothing gets done. And he, he just created it. And we kind of, he kind of built it, you know, as they say, you, you, you build the plane in, in midair and that's what he did. And I, I just thought, boy, that is a powerful message. He wasn't afraid to fail. Uh, he wasn't afraid to to tweak things, to try things, kind of trial by error. And, you know, now we have drug courts that are pretty standard in, in the state of Vermont. We certainly need more of them. Um, 
but the drug court and the mental health court were really from the judiciary. And this other fellow who was a mental health clinician and I think um, and a substance abuse counselor, um, he just had such faith in people um, that, you know, as a baby prosecutor, he'd tell me what to do and I would do it uh, because he just had such such belief in people. Um, and it really was, again, at this kind of eye-opening experience for me saying, wow, this we could actually do things different here if we didn't think like lawyers. Right. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Part of your campaign was you discussed prior involvement in the criminal justice system. Could you tell us about that? Yeah. Um, I'm going to lose votes down in Florida now. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, we don't want that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so... When I was 18, I, I, I got arrested. I got it. I got drunk and I got into a fight. Um, really stupid. As many 18-year-olds do. Yeah. And um, I went through the, the, the criminal justice system and really kind of a searing experience for me. And again, those issues of kind of shame and embarrassment, uh, you know, having your name in back when there was local papers kind of listed in day in court in a small town. Um, and it really impacted me um, on a lot of different levels. But I also, um, my future was kind of protected. I mean, I had a private lawyer. Um, I got what was called a deferred sentence, which meant that, you know, once you did your probation and um, followed the conditions and satisfied the conditions, the case would be expunged. So you, it would never, as, as if it never existed. And so when I went back to be a prosecutor, um, I could really identify with people in the criminal justice system who were being charged with crimes, who were good people, who made a mistake um, or did something stupid like I did. And I certainly could recognize those feelings of shame and embarrassment. And, you know, I don't think we talk enough what shame does to people. And I experienced at 18 and I, you know, even talking right now, I still have those feelings about it, to be perfectly blunt about it. Um and so it never left me. And um, I really tried to pay it forward by giving the opportunity that I received to people who were not in the same position as I was. As I said, I came from kind of a family of resources of that social capital. Um, and my future was protected. And there's so many people, and we know this, that aren't that they take that criminal record and that criminal record carries those collateral consequences, which impacts their housing, which impacts their educational opportunities, which impacts their job opportunities. And we've marginalized people in the name of public safety and it hasn't worked. And the folks who we've done it most to are people of color and the poor. And, you know, I'm no better, but I, I got the second chance. And so that, that really was a motivating factor to give people these second chances by, you know, investing in the drug courts, the mental health court, the rapid intervention community court. And really now as attorney general, we talk about policy pushing legislation like expungements, which I'm a big proponent of, which erases old criminal records. Uh, we were fighting in the legislature this year to get a, a, an expanded, expanded bill passed to expunge even more crimes because this is the thing that I, I, I we see it every day. You know, we tell people, Pay your debt back to society. We let you back in. But we don't do that because those records follow them and they have to disclose them. And it's completely arbitrary. It's completely unfair. I don't think there's a defense attorney or a prosecutor or a judge at a sentencing is saying, I'm going to sentence you to a lifetime of poverty. and You're never going to get a job. 
that's not, but that's what those records do. And so as an AG, we've gone around the state holding expungement clinics. And it's one of the fav- my, my favorite things to do. We've actually done it remotely, which has worked okay, not as great as, but people are so grateful because they've carried this, this shame and, and this label that is completely unfair and incorrect for so long. And people just want to be able to provide and to achieve their dreams. And that's what we have to do by reforming our criminal justice system is to stop holding people back. Are you running for president anytime soon? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm just, uh, I'm just trying to get my kids to soccer practice. You know? But I, I, I you know, that experience, um, I did something really stupid. And that's the only way I can describe it. And, um, but I, but I, you know, look, I'll be really honest. With you. I went to Burlington high school. Um, and I remember when I was state's attorney, there was a, a, a petition for expungement came across my desk. And as I said, it was like one of the most meaningful things I could do was to sign those things to give folks an opportunity. And there was a kid who, yeah, 40 something years old, I'm calling him a kid. He, uh, you know, he came from a very different background than me. Um, you know, came from a tough background. Um, it probably came from a from a, a poor background, and uh, he he was trying to get um, an, an assault conviction expunged, and it just stopped me in my tracks because you know we played freshman sports together in high school, and you think about those paths that people take, and you know, one small step to the to the right, and it changes your your world, or you go left and it changes your world for the worse and how arbitrary it all is. And I certainly knew that that gentleman didn't have the same resources I had, but I was no better than him. And that's the unfairness of the system. And, you know, as I said, it hurts people of color, it hurts the poor. We do it to people who are sick, whether it's from mental illness or addiction. And, you know, so my feelings in the criminal justice continue to evolve, but I think it comes from that experience of being like, you know, that was me. And but for um, who I am and coming from a, a, a position of privilege, my life would have been different. And I need to do everything I can to level the playing field and give people the same opportunity. That's amazing. And uh, we talk a lot about, you know, empathy being kind of the... Yeah the beginning of how things change. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know you kind of have a hard deadline, so, um, or a hard cutoff date. So um, what criminal justice reform issues do you feel need the most attention or change? And how do we um, go about doing that as either citizens or lawyers or, you know, people in the community? What do we do to focus on the most important issues? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, I I think expungements, are incredibly powerful, right? Because as we go forward, we're doing a lot to reform our criminal justice system, and that's great. But we also have to look back, right? And we have to look back and understand that so many people have been have been hurt by by the system, and those expungements, uh, to which is truly to erase the old record, so you don't have to disclose it anymore. It's a reset button for so many people. So that's number one. I think bail reform number two is incredibly important because a lot of folks that end up in jail start uh, by being held on bail or for lack of bail. And it hurts the poor because, hey, look, you know, we may say it's only 500 bucks. Well, that should be 5,000 bucks to, to, to some folks. And people make a rational choice to get out of jail. They plead out. 
They, t- they take a reduced charge, credit for time served, and get out, and they take the record. And again, the record that carries the collateral expenses. So we get to work on bail reform. And then finally, I think when we talk about um, really this moment of inflection when it comes to, to policing, um, I, you know, Vermont just changed the law on the use of deadly force or the use of force by police to force that's only necessary, really the highest standard. And um, I'm very, that's going to take effect July 1st. And I think that has to be the national standard that we need less force, more trust when it comes to our policing. We have to understand the issues of mental illness. We have to understand the issues of de- de-escalation. We have to understand cultural competency. Um, and we've got to do a lot more to build trust with communities. And so um, those are some of the things that I think uh, are, are certainly priorities of mine. Um, you know, bail reform in Vermont, we, we, we have, um, you know, the other issue is this issue of what's called pattern and practice jurisdiction for AGs uh, to hold police departments on, uh, accountable. Um, the police have a hard job. I respect the police. Um, but we need to make sure um, that we continue to increase the trust, the public's trust in our police. And that means that we have to be open, and this includes prosecutors too, to criticism and not to shy away from the criticism, but to embrace it and say, this is coming from a good place. We all, we all want to be safe. We all want an opportunity. But as I always say, you know, um, if I get stopped, you know, I may be worried for running a red light. I may be worried about a speeding ticket. We know that's not um, for people of color. Uh, that isn't true. And right. we have to acknowledge the the legacy of race and racism in our criminal justice system and make sure uh, that we're continuing to address it. Uh, so all these issues are on the table. We have to continue to lead. Uh, we have to continue to um, really strive f- for what truly is a, a justice system. And that's hard to define. That is hard to define, you know, but, you know, I really look, empathy is one of my, I love that word. And it, it's something that I think if we had more of in this world, the world would be a better place. So I want to thank you guys for the work you guys are doing to highlight really these important issues because um, it, it, it's hard and there's a lot of work to do, but we got to continue to highlight the, the great work that folks like you are doing. So, so thank you. We know that you are out of time. Uh, so if our listeners could take away one thing from this interview, what would you like it to be? You, you know that um, our, our criminal justice system really is a system about public safety. And for me, what public safety means is a safe and vibrant community for everybody. That's not about the police. That's not about lawyers. That's not about courtrooms, but it's about affordable housing, a good place to live. It's about access to affordable health care when your kid is sick and you got to get them help. It's about good public schools um, that have robust mental health treatment. It's about affordable higher education so kids can actually afford to go to college and not be completely overwhelmed by the enormous uh, student loan debt. And it's about jobs. And if we look at like our community and say, these are the fundamentals, these are the pillars of a strong community, good healthcare, good schools, affordable housing, neighborhoods with trees and parks and local schools and, and businesses, 
that's a safe community and it, and it has to apply to everyone. Thank you so Thanks. much. And we really appreciate your time um, spending with us today. We appreciate everything you're doing and we hope that um, all the attorney generals across the United States will hear what you have to say. So. <laughs> Well, thanks, thanks for having me, guys, and um, look forward to, to coming on again. Awesome. All right. Thank, thank you, you so much. Have a great rest of your day. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. All editing for Gin and Justice done by Gin and Justice Podcast. Artwork by Justin Cardone. Photography by Kimber Schwakey. We'll see you next time on Gin and Justice.